and what traits specifically do you see successful entrepreneurs commonly possess? They're impatient and they need to build something. In fact, we we often talk about, and we even talk about it for our firm, you know, because because we've built something as well. It's it wasn't even like a decision. Like you just had to do it. Um, those are some of the best entrepreneurs because like it's not like they chose to be an entrepreneur. They just they're like, I gotta go do this. Welcome to It's a Material World, the show that uncovers why material science will change the world. With your hosts, David Ye and Pamithu Padia. Before we get into the episode, we have a free MSC company database categorized by industry sector, location, as well as internship and full-time titles. So you can find that link in the show notes below. And without further ado, let's get started. Our sponsor today is Johnson Matthew a global leader in sustainable technology. Johnson Matthews' vision is for a world that's cleaner and healthier today and for future generations. Johnson Matthews scientists use their deep understanding of materials, surface science, chemistry, and chemical engineering to design catalysts, advanced materials, and processes, tackling the world's biggest challenges, such as reaching net zero, enabling cleaner air, improving health, and using our planet's natural resources more efficiently. For over 20 years, they have been in the manufacturing and shape setting of nitinol tubes, sheets, and components for the medical device industry. So Johnson Matthew is an ideal sponsor for today's podcast. Johnson Matthew, inspiring science, enhancing life. Hey everyone, in this episode, we'll be looking at the field of material science through a different lens than usual, venture capitalism and entrepreneurship. To help us do this, we're very excited to welcome today's guest, Julia Moore, the co-founder and managing partner at Breakout Ventures, a venture capital firm that invests in early stage companies that harness the power of cells to build solutions to human health and sustainability. Julia began her career as a public investor and research analyst on Wall Street, and now has been investing in building science-driven companies for the last 15 years. I know you're very, very busy, so thank you for joining us today, Julia. Thanks so much for having me, guys. It's a lot of fun. Yeah, so to start out, we'd just love to learn more about you and your story, and we'd like to learn more about like what makes you passionate about just the entrepreneurship space and investing in companies specifically with like a bioscience focus, material science focus. Yeah, no, well, thanks for having me again, and and just to give a little bit of context here, I know I'm a little bit different than some of your your other guests, and I think that maybe something that ties all of us together is a love for building things. So most folks who have a, a venture job love building things, love, I mean, it's, I, when I started in, in venture, it wasn't really something that I had heard of growing up. So my, my first kind of job in venture was 15 years ago. And I remember getting into like month one of this and being like, wait, this is a real job. Like, <laughs> you know, essentially it's, the people who end up in venture tend to be insatiably curious, love building things, a bit impatient um, because you're always moving on to the next thing and, and trying to build. So I think really not only does it fit that aspect of loving building, loving to learn, but also just, you know, talk about rewarding. You're working with some of the most brilliant people in the world to build technologies that the world needs, especially in the areas that we work in. So to the why bioscience, why this area of investment for us, um, for me, you know, in the intro, you kind of heard, I've, I've really spent the last almost two decades of my career more broadly in biosciences, really starting in life sciences. Life science is kind of the natural place for me to go with my career. I know a lot of folks are, are thinking about where they're going to head and, and their parents' influence uh, on that. And, and a lot has to do with the house you grew up in. I grew up in a MD, PhD house and the family business was, I guess, healthcare. Also, <laughs> also a bunch of, um, you know, sort of tinkers and engineers in the background, right? Like I'm sure a lot of um, the homes of, of folks would be listening. And so, you know, when I was growing up, some of the things that I became obsessed with were around what was happening with genetic engineering. So, you know, cloning Dolly in the 90s and like this kind of new wave of what, what does that mean? for all of us when we can actually edit DNA and, and change kind of the, the profile of a living being. <laughs> and so that kind of set me on that path. Um, and luckily, biosciences more broadly has been a really exciting place to be for the last 20 years because of you know some of those changes that I noticed even when I was still in school. 
And if you think about the role of what we, we think about as enabling technology, so the sequencing, computation, genetic editing, all of this that's happened over the last couple of decades, it really creates a whole new intersection uh, or opportunity at the intersection of technology and biology and chemistry. And, and that's really what we focus on. So we call that in, in our thesis, we call that creative biosciences. So the ability to create entirely new things at this intersection, but now really on commercially and because and we're a venture fund, right? We think about the commercial side quite a bit commercially relevant timelines and budgets. So so not just we can do it and we'll do some research for 20 years and then hopefully it ends up in a product, but but really we can we can start creating commercial products out of this. And so I'll give you a little bit of a, a background of, of how we do it and, and we can talk a little bit more. But so for us, what that means, that intersection where that opportunity lies, we really think about both life sciences, you know, sort of traditionally where I started but with this very much next-gen lens, um, if you think about computational discovery programs and, and all of these things that, that weren't the biotech that I started my career in by any stretch. But the other side, we, we call broadly sustainability, but it's really about creating higher-performing, more sustainable materials ingredients for the most part. And you know, we've really been building this for the last 10... My partner and I have been building Breakout Ventures for the last 10 years. And so what that's meant, you know, you go from maybe more traditional material science into some of the advances in, in synthetic biology. And, and just if you think about the opportunity set, think about all the things that we've made out of petroleum over the years, because we didn't really, it was the commercially relevant thing to do. We, we didn't really have another option, whether from a design or a cost or a time standpoint. And now you're sort of chipping away at that by engineering biology to make some of those same products. And so when we think about the excitement about an opportunity like that, venture, you know, I think by definition is, is you should be investing in things you couldn't do five years ago. So, so think about all of these opportunities now at this intersection because of where technology is that suddenly is moving into that commercialization stage and, and sort of how exciting that is. You know, I, I think one thing that I'll, I'll just kind of transition second was, you know, when people think about venture, they often think about uh, watching an episode of Silicon Valley or tech venture, but, but really this is the origin of venture, right? Like Fairchild Semiconductor and, and the Silicon movement. It's like doing the hard things with venture is, is what we're supposed to do. Um, hopefully what we're doing instead is taking on lots of important technical risk and then really understanding the markets that, and, and maybe taking a lot less market risk because we know if we can build something that there's an opportunity there. Yeah. Wow. I, I just have like so many thoughts. So I'm just trying to put it all together. So I guess my, <laughs> my first question then is you said the kind of the opportunity cost comparing it to petroleum. So right now you're working on building like sustainable and high performing materials and, and the companies that go alongside that. Are there any like disadvantages that come with that? Like maybe from the cost perspective, does that tend to mean higher costs or um, can you match the cost? Because I know that's one of the biggest benefits from the, like the petroleum side is the lower costs and the refined processes. Yeah. I mean, this is like the big discussion. So in our world, we, we talk a crazy amount about unit economics. So we think a lot of, especially when you look at materials and ingredients, we getting the, the kind of trifecta right is hard, but we think about, you know, why are we, we doing this with a new, a new approach? And typically we want to lead with performance. So is there, you, you don't really want to be investing in something that's just green as much as it is important and an important part of climate change and, and everything we're doing. But from an adoption standpoint, you want to, Think about performance first, if you, if you can. And when you think about performance, cost, and and maybe where it like, can you drop this into the supply chain? Right. right. Like these are a few things that are kind of the first. Like when you when you meet a new company, I feel like that's the framework. I kind of say, okay, like you know, where are we on a performance? Is this going to help the customer have a better product? how hard is it for them to adopt? Do they have to build whole new infrastructure or is this really a replacement that they can drop into what they've already done? Because that's a whole different cost part of the adoption curve. And then there's the actual cost of goods cost part of things. And like anything, you can take take aside the inputs or put aside the inputs of cost. Think about scale. 
So you're never going to be at the scale that BASF or, you know, any of the commoditized players are at. So you're always going to be at a disadvantage from a cost perspective. So you really think about, can I get to some sort of cost parity longer term where cost isn't the reason why people aren't adopting? So very often you hear folks starting with premium markets. So think more specialty chemicals than commodity chemicals, like for example, of how you think about pricing, understand like how much of the value of the product and the end product you're making you represent in that stack. And, and so like all the ingredients that went into making a, um, a leather good or um, a pharmaceutical product or, or anything like that, are, are you the important part? Therefore, can you charge a bit more and a bit of a premium so that you can make up a little bit of that margin early on when you when you don't have scale. And then in a lot of the areas of, you know, if you think about disadvantages, um, I wouldn't say disadvantages. I say it's maybe a, a technical milestone that's exciting <laughs> that you get to solve. Um, like a challenge. You know, we, to, yeah, challenge. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, it'll be the fun part because um, the, the technical milestones are the fun part. But there's just as much proof of concept technical milestone from a risk perspective of, hey, does this thing do the what we hope it does, as well as sort of a technical scale issue, especially, you know, if you get into some of the areas of fermentation and things like that, where, you know, having that batch batch consistency, having that scale up, not having a waste product, you know, like you, you have a lot of waste in that system and in that cost. So figuring out the technical scale aspect of it can help give you more visibility into what your longer term unit economics could be and therefore be able to for example price your early contracts correctly or be a truly viable player when people think about doing larger volume customer relationships over time so there's i think when you start maybe that's a that's a disadvantage versus petroleum i don't know we we happen to be talking on a day when Oil costs are above hundred dollars a barrel, but um, <laughs> you know. But you, I think none of us are waking up, and you know, when you think about clean tech one a lot of people say, "Hey, we we did too much that ended up like if oil went down, we were screwed." And so, thinking about it really as like a longer term performance, where you're sort of chipping away at costs to get there over time, is is really how how we think about it. So you've talked about a lot of qualities that is important for you, such as cost, scale, and some of these other more technological features about green sustainability. One question that we had is that I'm sure there's a lot of companies that look good on paper and, like you said, are like five years out. We don't have it for the last five years and they're trying to build something new. How does your firm decide which bioscience company to invest in and what other things that we may not have touched on yet? that are important for that decision-making process? So the one thing I was going to say that I want to make sure I say at some point today is we're big believers, actually, that venture is not the right model for every company. And I'm just going to say that you know out loud because I've spent um, most of my career working with academics who are brilliant and have something and then are building a business. And, and sometimes you have something that's a wonderful business and there's a lot of different ways to fund that business versus just venture. So I, I say that as the beginning part because it, there's a lot of ways to build a business that, that won't have to hit some of the things that I'm talking about is my point. So really our job is to underwrite really worthy technical risk against huge market opportunities. And if we can figure this out, it'll all be worth it. But we have to think about it as not everything will work out. So by definition, we have to look for big things. So I think that's one, one thing to start with is the qualities or traits that we're looking for in a company, oftentimes it, it has to be a big thinking type of approach, first of all, where maybe you start with a proof of concept market that's small and that's totally fine. In fact, usually it's it's where we want people to start because you you can get there commercially faster. You can own more of the market. Maybe you're you're more different more differentiated, for example. But that is it's kind of this gateway to to a much bigger opportunity. So of course we're looking for sort of elegant differentiated tech technology. We spend a lot of time diligencing and understanding that. But just as important as that is, you know, is the business side of the, you know, what is the demand for that product? Um, what is the market risk? You know, we we actually kind of talk a lot about not taking market risk, which isn't really true, but 
if you think about it in the flip, like we love the difficult to do and um, hard to understand. And so how many things do you want that could potentially go wrong? You know, also your go-to-market, for example. So we really look for teams that understand the market, the market opportunity, how they're getting there, who they're going to need to hire. I would say that I'm, I'm kind of touching on the team part of things as well. So um, the interesting thing is like as many times as I, you know, I'm a technical investor and as many times as I do this, I'm like, oh, this is a people business. And things oftentimes succeed or fail because of the people. So we're really looking for, you know, we we love backing early technical teams. We love backing technical CEOs, but you really have to think about how coachable, malleable is that person? How much are they... So for example, like the, the example I always give people, it's like, okay, so you just started this company. You can, from today on, you can't be the smartest person in the room. You have to go hire people who make you uncomfortable because they're so good at what they do, <laughs> but it isn't what you do, right? Like, I, I don't want you, I want you being literate in HR and everything else. But if you're a technical CEO, like go hire the best at that, go hire the best in, in BD or you know, in some aspect of the technology that you were not trained in, um, don't try and do all that yourself. And so I think that we look for those people who are, are optimists. They're like, I'm going to do this big, hairy, wonderful thing, and I'm going to change the world, but also able to attract wonderful people to build that team because the execution goes beyond just the founding team. Absolutely. Okay. So I guess just to provide some more context for this episode, then, you know, a portion of our audience may be interested in like starting a company or even if it's not like venture backed, but personally, like David and I, I feel like we're passionate about like building organizations from the ground up or growing existing organizations. And I feel like we're not, not the only MSCs who are like that. And so with that being said, when it comes to growing a company successfully, what are some of the factors that may lead to a company failing versus succeeding outside of what you already mentioned about the team? I, I think that's really important to mention. Yeah, no, I, I think the team, it's it's so funny, right? You look back over your career and, and you do all these, like you, you wrote a memo and you thought you got the risks right. And, and um, you know, every now and then you get blindsided by something um, or you underwrote the risk and, and the thing that you thought had a you know single digit percentage chance of happening happens. Very often failure is a is a mix of people making decisions at the wrong time or you know it, it's kind of multifactorial very often. Um, I actually did this, it was a couple of weeks ago or maybe last week, um, had some quotes on the on the biotech side of our world in in a piece saying you know why the surprising reasons why why early stage biotech companies fail and I think that because we work with such technical founders some of the things that we pointed to was the very early stage companies that come out with a you know it's it's very often for a lot of our companies to start with grants um, they're often coming out of a lab. Uh, I, I wouldn't say it's it's 100 of companies maybe these days it's half and half you know uh, some technology that was that was sort of incubated within a lab and, and got the benefit of non-dilutive funding. And, and then they kind of, you know, move towards commercialization. So a very common thing we see is this like grant mindset early and, and it's normal. And, and we, we think of ourselves as a, a bridge sometimes, but you need a lot more buffer when you're running something with venture backed money or you're growing a business at all, even if it's not with venture backed money. So you can't think, okay, I've got this project these are my exact costs. This is my exact timeline. It never works that way. <laughs> Everyone's more expensive. Like you go to hire someone, they're always it always takes longer, they're more expensive. You can't get the time with your third party the way you think you can. Your contract goes up. You know, you have to go raise more money. I mean, the very common thing we see is you, you know, get a couple million dollars in the bank. You have a project that's sort of like a de-risking proof of concept. So you're like, "Great, I'm going to go do that." And then like on, you know, the last day you have cash, you get your milestone and then you're like, oh, I'm going to go fundraise. Now. <laughs> it's like, oh, that can take six months. Right. So at the earliest stages, a lot of the, I would call it more failure to launch where it's just that transition to moving quickly, thinking about 
having more budget for things, thinking about hiring ahead. You know, you, you just have too many workflows in your head the way that you're, you're transitioning from just thinking about the technical milestone ahead of you to really thinking about all these different workflows that you have to kind of, like you know, plates you have to keep spinning. So I'd say that's a really common issue. And then really, I think that one of the fascinating things about our job um, and, and why I love working with entrepreneurs and with founders is there's a lot of personal development that happens in founders over the life cycle of a fund. And the folks who, who go into it sort of optimistic about what they're building and sort of willing to really learn and take feedback and say, hey, I'm going to grow into this next phase and this next phase and this next phase. You know, it's it's hard to find. It's it's a really hard skill set, but it, it's I think the thing that that makes the biggest difference in a successful company. Yeah, I remember hearing on a podcast. It was just a phrase that really resonated with me. It was it said, "What got you here won't get you there," mm-hmm. and I think that kind of ties into this like idea of personal development. If you want to achieve your next goal, then you'll have to develop yourself. And I guess before we get into more of like a case study with CheckerSpot, which is a wonderful partner of ours. I wanted to briefly dive into a unique role that material science chemistry graduates may not think about when it comes to a potential career path after school. So you mentioned the idea of due diligence, and I know Breakout Ventures actually has a couple PhD graduates in neuroscience and chemistry um, to provide a different perspective. So can you kind of go into what exactly they do and why their role is very important for breakout ventures. Yeah, absolutely. And I'll, I'll talk about our team in a second, but I realized I'd be, be a missed opportunity to not say, we, we also have a fellows program that we've been running since 2015 of mostly PhDs, postdocs, master's students. Um, oftentimes it's a way we'll have kind of 10 at a time on entrepreneurial campuses that that we want to know what's going on. We we can't be on. So we want someone who can go to things and, and have a sense of, of what's happening in sort of the entrepreneurial ecosystem. Sometimes you know, they're working on, on areas in their own research that's kind of on the cutting edge. It's really good for us to hear, you know, hey, here's what you're seeing companies, but, but like we're already figuring this out, you know, in the lab or something I've been working on. So I say that just because I think it's an important part of us building into the ecosystem and, and staying connected, but also how we met one of our associates who's been <laughs> working with us since 2017, actually, um, during his PhD at Georgia Tech, NEMA. And so I'll, I'll give a little bit of, of context to our team and, and maybe the evolution here. I think that, you know, a lot has changed even in the last 10 years, you know, just the same way that there used to be the technical founder and then the business person, um, you know, that's changed. Like, you know, how do we look at that technical founder as someone who can grow into these roles and, and learn these different pieces? I think similarly, what we're hearing and seeing is that like pressure to stay in the academic path when you're in grad school isn't as uh, strong as it used to be, or, you know, in, in STEM in general, um, you know, we would have PhD students, like, you know, um, covertly talking to us because they didn't want their PI to know that they're considering, you know, starting a company or something, you know. Um, And I think that's just changed quite a bit over the last 10 years. And you're seeing entrepreneurial ecosystems touch those, those folks earlier. So maybe, maybe it's unique, but it's, it's shifting as well. So I, I think that if you look at our team, we sort of joke about our team that, we're broadly a team of deep generalists and extroverted PhDs. And that's like our internal joke because we think about no one really has a specialty in the things that we do. Um, we, we oftentimes are at the intersection of a couple of different disciplines, all new things that, you know, even if your, your academic work is a few years behind you, it might be stale already, right? Uh, you know, so we really think about people who have big brains who devour learning new things, forming opinions quickly, can like flex their deep domain expertise one day, uh, but really thrive at this like learning to learn and and get technical concepts quickly. Um, and so a background in STEM and a background having gone uh, deep in certain areas is obviously great training for that. 
So on our team, I think you, I spoke to Nima, who's our associate who's a PhD in chemistry, between organic chemistry and, and chemical engineering from uh, Georgia Tech. And he started with us in 2017 in this kind of fellowship uh, type of capacity. And, and um, the day he defended, he came cross country to, to work for us, which was really exciting for us. Uh, Dana, our our principal on our investment team, you know, she's a PhD neuroscientist. So, uh, you know, neuroscientist by training, um, started, but but like early signs of this entrepreneurial bend, like started her own company early on, and and now has has spent her career more in the entrepreneurship and investment side. So, you know, we benefit quite a bit from their deep domain expertise. And, and yeah, of course, if there's a, a neuro company, company or, you know, we we're talking about fluorination and defluorination yesterday and like Neem is like on it, right? <laughs> but at the same time, we benefit from just their broader ability to, to think. And, and there is no such thing as just taking your, your deep domain expertise and, and, and doing it every day in this job. You, you have to be, be thinking quite a bit bigger. Yeah, it seems like uh, you're creating a cross-functional team of people who are very cross-functional. So it sounds like <laughs> it's a very interesting uh, group of people to work with. And I'm sure it's very exciting when everybody's moving so fast. But yeah, we want to dive into the case study that Pranitha was talking about. And so to give more context, uh, Breakout Ventures, your company, has actually funded one of our sponsors, Checkerspot, who we thoroughly enjoyed collaborating with. We just would like to see the input because we've heard a lot about Checkerspot and some of what they do in previous episodes. Now that we've seen the science side and talked more in depth on that side, now we would love to hear how you found them, how they look to you, and exactly what excites you about the innovation and growth potential of the company. To see if like Charlie and Scott are listening, this is it's going to be like you know someone telling the story of how we met, and then they have a different version. Let's let's see how this goes. But I, I really enjoyed listening to your piece with um, Scott. Was that maybe a year or two ago? Yeah, I think it was episode eleven. Yeah, Scott Franklin, the um, one of the founders of of Checker Spot. I I actually think that we met them very early on when they were starting Checker Spot. At the time, we were you know we do seed and series A checks typically. So early stage, um, you know, we're kind of anywhere from a first $500,000 check as you're starting a company. So 500 million or, or maybe a $6 million check for a company that's that's maybe gone through that first iteration and, and first funding and proof of concept and, and is scaling. Real quick, Julia, yeah. can you define like series A funding, series B and everything? <laughs> I knew I was just going to screw that up for myself. <laughs> I know it's, and it's also dumb. It keeps on changing. It's confusing. <laughs> Think about seed funding as it's hard to put numbers on it these days, but think about it as that first funding that you get to kind of do some proof of concept work. Um, say, you know, in, in a lot of cases, we're sort of recreating something that, you know, from a lab or literature and, and, and trying to say, yes, this is, this works or we can recreate it, starting to get a sense of the practicization of it. So a seed in some cases, like seed funding might be these kind of quick, you know, a few million dollars in our companies. It also comes with typically people are doing SBIRs or so if, if the commercialization grants at the same time, we love non-dilutive money. We have some companies that have more non-dilutive than dilutive money. And when I say non-dilutive, I mean grants, things you don't pay back. Got it. My money is dilutive. <laughs> so I'm taking equity, right? Right. So we really think <laughs> about the the benefit of, of the space that we work in being that you can use both, right? You can use non-dilutive money, which is more restrictive and a little bit harder, but that it has an important role in in, in helping de-risk. So you might do a few million dollars, some, some SBIR grants, some other maybe grant specific to your space to kind of get your technology off the ground. And when you have a little bit more to show for it, you know, you have a proof of concept, you have a plan of your go-to-market, you start to think about that, what the the future of your company will look like. You oftentimes go out for what we typically call the series A, which is kind of that bigger round where you're starting to really grow the company. If we have people who listen to a lot of venture podcasts, all the words are getting confusing right now because now we're doing $20 million series seeds and <laughs> people are just playing with the words, but think about it as, your early money is kind of your seed. And then and then kind of as you're starting to really build the company, it's series A, we call it kind of the first institutional rounds where it, it's more 
money uh, that is is in an institutional structure like a venture fund or, or or something like that. So just for that concept. Okay. So for Checker Spot, which did seed and then um, Series A, they didn't do a huge Series seed that was before that time. I think we met them early on when they were starting. Um, one of my colleagues did and and kind of got a sense of what they were working on and and you know what the next kind of couple of years might look like. And I think maybe we're, they were considering doing some other work with Illumina and, and some others to sort of better characterize the platform and, and then really got to know them again as they were thinking about their Series A, um, which, oh gosh, now I should have written this down. I want to say it was like $14 million. And that Series A, part of what was interesting there is we were kind of these over the last, you know, call it mid 2010s, these weirdos that were doing sort of like bio and material science and <laughs> always had trouble explaining what we were doing. Um, now it, you know, I can say, oh, you know, tech bio or deep tech bio or, you know, uh, sin bio, like all these things that now um, are a little bit more mainstream. But, you know, we, we have been building these types of companies and forming our opinion, frankly, on business model. Um, there's a lot of things, and, and we can talk about this separately, there's a lot of things about traditional material science companies that aren't venture backable. This whole like couponing process of like, you don't know what your customer is making and they give you specs for it and you go spend a bunch of time working on it. You've no clue how to price it. All the powers in their hands, all the timelines in their hands. Like it's not a great venture business. And so as we looked at the material space in particular, we are moving towards folks who are really thinking about disrupting that business model quite a bit. And so when Checkerspot was coming out and they were telling this story about, so we're a material science company that makes skis. Most people are like, what? No, so you're a consumer company. It's like, <laughs> no, we're a material science company that makes skis. And there are very few of us who are kind of like, oh, I want that. <laughs> <laughs> and, and we had been, like I said, working in material science, um, some of our earlier investments, Modern Beto and, and some of the others where we had been living the front lines of, of the customer adoption and those partnership discussions. And really, I thought, I don't know that, that Charlie and Scott have used this language, but I really thought of you know, the Wonder Alpine brand, which is, which is the, I'll, I'll give the context for folks who haven't listened to this. Checker Spot is a, a broader plat material science platform that is engineering microalgae um, to produce, you know, novel bio oils. And really the advantage that they have is that they not only have a very strong technical platform, but they are really looking at the full applications development animation of the product. And so they know how to make something out of their new oil profiles that really helps them in the conversation with business development. So Wonder Alpine was really where they started as a, what is a product, like an end product we can make? That shows we really know how it, it helps us iterate and learn quite a bit faster on, on the benefits or, or um, design aspects of our, our platform. And they started with um, backcountry skis. So Wonder Alpine is their backcountry ski brand. And I kind of like joke about it as like the Trojan horse where you're like getting in to be able to say, well, we've already, you know, with a B2B partner, with a, a business partner, you know, well, we've already made that we don't have to do this couponing process with you. Like we've made a product out of this. We understand it. Uh, here, let me show you it. And just like how much that throws a, a potential business relationship off. They're like, oh, wait, <laughs> we, we aren't just buying something from you. We're designing with you. Mm -hmm. And just how much more interesting that is. If part of the goal here is to sort of blow up the antiquated business model. If, if you're doing something high value, and exciting, and you really have the opportunity to be a longer-term strategic partner to the businesses that you're working with and the brands that you're working with, you kind of have to blow that up and, and having something in hand that you can show that you too are an applications developer and, and that you can do that in partnership, I think was really, really attractive to us. Yeah. I think now that we've talked about some of the funding grounds, I had a question specifically about some startups. So I worked at a startup and one of the biggest takeaways I took from it was that they are ruthlessly results oriented. And the emphasis was that in six months, we need data to show the investors or else we won't be a company in six months. So that's probably a little bit of an overstatement of how intense it is. But from a startup perspective, it really is 
fail fast, get as much data as possible, and continually don't waste time. Like find the shortest path to success. So from the venture capital point of view, how does that mindset affect some of your decisions? Now that we now that I've seen the startup point of view and how we want to present to you. It's interesting. I so it's like a little piece of my career. I built an institute at Stanford. And I remember, you know, when we were talking about the benefits of the Bay Area ecosystem and stuff, or we talked about like having enough money to fail, which also means that people were there's some great for anyone who's into ecosystem analysis and stuff. There's um probably have it actually right here. Um, yeah, regional advantage. It's this um, it's actually a woman's dissertation from like the 90s looking at the the inputs into the Boston ecosystem, the Route 128 versus Silicon Valley, and like what were the different, you know, patents, PhDs, like all of these kind of hard inputs that go into like what should have created value. And it really ended up being some of this like less tangible stuff about like, you know, comfort with failure. <laughs> and um, there's also, you know, things about, you know, non-competes and, you know, you can shop for a job. Like people are always afraid to lose people mm-hmm. because they could go to a, a, a new job any day. But I, I do think when you when you talk about, you know, hey, we won't be a company in the next six months, that, that kind of ruthless focus on milestones is an important part of building something. You have to kind of prove your value at every every step of the game. So I think, you know, something that we oftentimes do with early stage companies or or share our thoughts with folks who are thinking about starting a company is kind of this like map of money versus value. So really thinking about, you know, you're creating a multi-stage process of like, okay, we're going to raise this much money, dilutive, non-dilutive, to figure out this thing, which then unlocks us to figure out this thing and this, um, which costs this amount of money. And and so it's kind of this stage and, and really mapping out, not just like, you know, we think of, I think people see in the news that funding rounds have almost become a milestone in and of themselves. They are representative of a, another milestone. So you you don't raise the money until you've sort of de-risked and and proven that you're on a a better path. So maybe one of the ways that we really think about it is when you're early stage, you you of course have a lot of risks. You have technical risk, you have market risk, you have all sorts of team risk, like everything. You're you're early, it's all still ahead of you. And so the question is, how do you knock down those risks such that it's more and more clear of where you're going and your ability to get there. And in deep tech or more technical companies, you know, that's all like the goal for us is to say, let's throw all that hairy technical risk at the beginning. Let's take it on head first. And then once we know there's something there, it's like, you know, and, and you can just really like fund that and grow that. Um, but those early years are all about technical de-risking to show people that, frankly, there's less and less of a chance of them losing their money. <laughs> Interesting. So I guess going back to Checker Spot, I was just wondering, what did the vetting process look like with this company? And I, I know we talked about like it was really cool that they had this application already, the skis. How did you take that and look at potentially next steps and and the larger like market opportunity as well that comes with uh, their technology? Uh, I have to go back to like my memo and figure out you know everything. <laughs> I think that when we think about how we diligence checker spot or another company at that at that stage, I find myself saying this intelligence a lot. There's like I just said, early stage. There's a lot of risk because. You, you don't really, everything is, the, the story is still to be written, right? So, so you can say whatever you want, but the question is, are we going to be able to achieve that? So in a company that was as early as Checkerspot was when, when we funded them, you're also diligencing, this is kind of the surprising part. I think there's the, the known parts. You're going to go into making sure that you understand the engineering aspect, the, the platform, the capabilities, the interest, you know, understanding some of the customers and their interest in those in those oil profiles, you know, you're you're going to do all of that. You're going to talk about, you know, how do we underwrite that proof of concept risk, which, which was a little bit less. It's a little bit more the scale risk and the go to market risk and and all of that. So you're 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 diligencing all these aspects. Frankly, we're picking up the phone. I mean, part a big part of our job is people, and so you know, working as long as we have in a lot of these spaces, it's 
you know, who's that person that we worked with at that large chemical company or someone that we started this company with and, and starting to network towards the, the specialists that you really want to hear from. Um, you don't want to like be, oftentimes we back people who are experts in what they do. So it's not like, I think sometimes people think of venture diligence as like, a gotcha. Like you're like, Oh, you're wrong. You're not going to be able to scale, but it's more treating the the technical founders or the founders in general, like they're the experts in what they do. So we're trying to make sure that we understand it really well in a way that we can underwrite what risk are we taking here? And the thing that I think might surprise people to think about is like, especially if, if someone, I, I wouldn't be surprised if a bunch of people are, are thinking about uh, management consulting careers or, or things like that, where it's a different side of business where you're analyzing a market. The thing that like I didn't really learn how to analyze earlier in my career is how people think. And that's like a really big part of early stage diligence because the plans will change, the obstacles will change. And so you're really diligencing. How does that early stage team think? And are they the people that like, We'll, we'll take on that challenge and think about it the right way. Are they thinking about their market entry? So as they get more information in a business development process, for example, are they cycling that information back and making it valuable and, and, and sort of you know changing course a little? So that's kind of maybe a surprising part of diligence that people don't think about is, is that there's a lot of diligence of, of just sort of how that early stage team thinks and how they're going to operate in the future. Interesting. Yeah. You tied it back to management consulting and I had like a few interviews last year and I, I mean, that totally makes sense. It was like, how do you think? And that's where engineers can kind of offer unique value to. We've just naturally had problem solving experiences through our research and past internships. And so it is just like looking at having, just knowing the the problem at hand and then just kind of trying to identify the root cause and coming up with ideas. So that's really interesting. No, and, and that's like a career, you know, studying STEM and like career in STEM is all about like learning how to learn and, and how to think. And um, the, I, have, I have kids and, and my husband and I joke about like, only way you beat the robots, right? Um, <laughs> it's like, be good with people and critical thinking. <laughs> <laughs> So another aspect that scientists may not think about enough is after an incredible discovery, how do you properly add business value and showcase the potential of something you created? I think one of the tropes is that, oh, scientists like, can like, create all these wonderful things in lab, but transferring them to an actual product is incredibly hard. And to make an actual business and actual product from a lab idea is very difficult and takes a lot of people. And it's not as easy as one might think. What advice would you give to someone who has developed a material with completely unique properties, but doesn't exactly know how to take that leap from the lab stage to an actual product? Yeah, I, I think it's it's interesting because if I think about the typical approach that you think, so I, I've developed a new product or a new material, has these great qualities. I know that's really interesting because this is my, you know, I, I've been in a lab, I understand, you know, this space and I know that that that's exciting. And then the question is to kind of step outside of the context that you are in for a little bit and think about, okay, who are the other stakeholders and why would they find it exciting? So not just, you know, I'm, I'm going to win some credibility among my, my sort of academic peers, which, which very often, you know, you, you will, but then really being able to characterize it, not talking about it in that context, but really talking about it in the customer context of why does that matter? And we actually often ask the question, like we, it, it's kind of um, maybe a, a bit crass, but I say like, you know, who with deep pockets cares? <laughs> and it's it's sort of something we say in, internally, but the whole point is like, that's the pull part of, of what you're doing. And so I think that it can be hard to get some of that information up, up front. Sometimes the the obvious place to start is, you know, you try and get a report, you try and understand, you know, what are the big companies doing? But oftentimes the part that I find the most useful is if someone comes to me and says, so I have this thing. I know it's really unique. I have some data that supports like there's demand for it. So I went out and I just started talking to people. And here's part of what I learned in that process. So so I think, you know, anyone can go look up any of the customer, you know, um, if anyone knows anything about design thinking or those, those sort of like 
customer discovery processes, giving that kind of narrative to what you learn and like why someone might be interested in it is a really good way to give more context from like multiple stakeholders point of view. And I I think people don't do that soon enough sometimes. Like everyone's getting much better at it and much more aware of it. But but I think that that is really a big difference if someone were coming to me with a a new idea with, with properties if they if they're answering the so what early that's that's pretty interesting yeah there's definitely like a storytelling aspect that that ties into it too so i was just wondering from the customer discovery you mentioned that specific aspect can you go into more detail of what that kind of looks like either through the process or what you like to see in terms of like feeling confident that there is demand for a potential application tied to some material innovation yeah, I mean, it depends on on what stage of company, of course. But but let's say we're we're kind of in this this seed stage. I think that what we like to see is you know sort of early proxies for future sales. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So if like a proxy for demand later is selling something and revenue and contracts then kind of, you know, move that one step back. It might be some sort of like pilot contract or, you know, um, you know, material transfer agreement or something like that. And then move that back one even more. It, it does end up being like customer interviews. Uh, the same way, you know, sometimes for like an SBIR or something, you'll have a customer sort of letter of support. So it's kind of like, what's that question? You know, this is something I want to see in the world or I would be interested in. So what's kind of that equivalent early on? Can you really say, hey, I talked to this person within this business unit and I learned a lot about their buying process and and you know their development and, and what they're interested in. And oftentimes you have to be careful because like if you just build for them, I think like there's some famous um, you know, like Steve Jobs or something. It's like, you know, you don't build for what people tell you that they want. You kind of start thinking about it together, like where things could go. But you can start to really put words to and and do, to your point, that storytelling around, here's a real bottleneck that they have. So, so maybe, maybe one thing to think about that we haven't introduced yet is this idea of urgency. So a lot of times in a business unit, someone might say, oh, it'd be great if I had, you know, whatever. But then have them rank it. Because oftentimes the lack of urgency is actually the thing that kills your timeline. Because there's someone like a scientist in a business unit being like, oh, I'd love to have that. But it's not even on their top 10 list. It's not on their top 100 mm-hmm. list. It's kind of, and, and definitely not for the firm or the company. So if you think about things that are like unlocking new markets for them, or it's been like a bottleneck because you just can't do this with chemistry, or you just can't do this. And then you're kind of being able to say like, Hey, I can do this thing. And now what would you do with it? So actually that's a, that's a question actually that I find fascinating is like when people not only do customer discovery, but say, Hey, I'm giving you this thing that you didn't have before. What cool new things could you do with it? Mm -hmm. And start to, to kind of explore that white space a little bit, because these are all for-profit entities. And they're all trying to think about, you know, your customers for the most part, unless you're going to an academic customer, which is a whole, a whole different <laughs> thing. But, you, but you'd ask the same question, like an academic R&D customer, of what new things could you do with this? How could you imagine your business growing or making new things? Or would, you, would it benefit one product line or multiple product lines? I think that's a really fun part of the discovery process. Yeah, that's awesome. I, I've definitely learned a lot and just it is a completely new lens of looking at things. So I've really enjoyed this conversation so far. And I guess we can just quickly wrap up just to hear your perspective on why someone might choose pursuing an entrepreneurial path over industry or academia or like after academia or industry. And what traits specifically do you see successful entrepreneurs commonly possess? I, I think I started saying earlier you know, there are some aspects of like what makes a, a VC, like personality aspects of what makes a VC. And I think similarly with with entrepreneurs, typically, especially technical founders that, that we've backed, they're they're impatient and they need to build something. In fact, we we often talk about and we even talk about it for our firm, you know, because because we've built something as well. It's 
it wasn't even like a decision. Like you just had to do it. Um, those are some of the best entrepreneurs. Cause like, it's not like they chose to be an entrepreneur. They just, they're like, I gotta go do this. And, and honestly, that's not for everyone. It is a very hard job to start a company. It is exhausting. And you have, you know, you wear multiple different hats early on. It, it doesn't pay very well at the beginning. <laughs> um, hopefully if you, yeah, like hopefully <laughs> if you, you know, the, the whole idea is like you own equity, you know, you're, you're, as we, we often ask like your greatest asset is your time. What are you spending it on? And if, and if you're saying I'm in, I'm investing my time, my greatest asset in this company, because I know it's going to be worth something like that. That's really meaningful for us to see. And so it's just, I think there is a very different energy and a pace than industry or academia, which each have their own, so, you know, pace and style. So like, it's not for everyone. It is hard. It is so fun. <laughs> you work with the most interesting, brilliant, collaborative people. But yeah, it's, it's not for everyone. It's not a nine to five job by any stretch. So, you know, we, uh, I had a, a colleague who would talk about, uh, who's a journal editor and, and she'd talk about, you know, reading or writing a journal article and then, then thinking to herself at the end of it saying like, oh, and hopefully this paper gets commercialized someday. You know, <laughs> it's like, if you're the person who reads that and is like, oh, you know, like this has this drives me crazy. I need to go do this thing. I can't just write a paper about it. Then, then you're probably pretty well suited to being an entrepreneur. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, I know it. There's like a risk element that comes into play, and then you kind of just have to like love the process, even if like the results don't show up immediately. It's kind of like delayed gratification of sorts, but really just kind of falling in love with the process. At least from what we've seen, just building this this podcast and um, related like online courses and things like that. But yeah, I love that answer, and we really enjoyed having you on today, Julia. It was a pleasure. So yeah, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thank you so much for having me, guys. As a materials engineer, we can make an impact in nearly every single industry. But with that versatility comes a lot of options to choose from. So if you have no idea which position or industry is right for you, you're not alone. I've been there, done that. But just for a moment, imagine narrowing down your ideal role and company within the week. Imagine being able to secure your dream offer without having to apply to hundreds of job openings. Our online course, MSE Academy, includes video testimonials, resumes, interview prep, and mentorship from materials engineers who have been in your shoes. We also connect our members with companies and industry professionals in our expansive network to help accelerate your job search process as much as possible. To learn more and get started, simply click the link in the show notes below. And if you enroll within the next 24 hours, we'll add three bonus career-related resources. I hope to see you there.